Well, I just wanted to welcome you guys. It's so fun to stand up here and see all of your faces. You guys are all eager. And I know what effort it takes to get here Saturday mornings, especially when it starts getting dark, then it's even harder. But um, I know that also it's God, the evidence of God's grace working in you that gets you here. So that's what we have in our favor, right? Um, this first class is kind of like just a, a class that helps you guys get oriented and know what Wellspring is and what, what we do for Wellspring. So there's going to be a lot of information thrown at you today, and I just want to prepare you ahead of time that it'll soak in as you go along, but um, it'll be well worth it. So um, I'm going to just start out with prayer, first of all, but I wanted to just do a few housekeeping things, and then we'll, I'll let you know what the schedule is. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for bringing us to this first wellspring. We are just looking forward, Lord, to what you're going to do with this year, with your word, engaged with our hearts, um, helping us to see the importance of that and helping us to be disciplined with our time with you. Um, your word is powerful, Lord, and it's active and alive. And you know us better than we know ourselves. You know exactly what we need, what we need to hear. So we pray for each of our hearts, Lord, this year, that you will um, set your word, plant your word deep there. Show us things that we need to see in order to live more godly lives for you, for your glory, for the building up of our church. Um, and we just thank you for each person here and how you've worked in their heart and how you will change us. Change us to be more like your son. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen. So um, there's, there's kind of four parts to our morning today. I'm going to start with just some housekeeping things, like I said, and then Smedley's going to come and teach us um, about the church's vision and purpose and how Wellspring fits into that. And then we're going to break up into two groups. The people who have, this is your very first time, you're going to go with Lori to, to the kinder room, which is... If you go down the, towards the kitchen and you turn left, it's right there across from the bathrooms. And then the people who are returning, who have been done Wellspring before, you can stay in this room and we'll do an intro that's a little different for you guys. Hopefully that'll be helpful. You guys can give us feedback on that. Um, and then after that, we're going to split up into our discussion groups. So there is a sheet in one of your handouts. I think it's like the fourth sheet in your handouts that you got today and it'll tell you what discussion groups you're in so if you look at that and you don't find your name on there um, come up to Lori or I and let us know and we'll help you find where you're supposed to be um, it, it says on there which where you're meeting so um, like I said if you are confused at all or you need direction or your name isn't on there let us know um, then, so, for housekeeping, each morning we're going to meet right at 7, like I said, and we're going to ask you to plan to come a little bit early and check yourself in, you know, um, 
Check your name off the attendance list, which is what you did today. Pick up your handouts, get coffee, have time to talk with someone before class starts. Um, and then we're going to each time the schedule will be about the same. It'll be, we'll have like an introduction, maybe some announcements, and someone will talk through the disciplines that are on the back of your notebook. And then we will have a teaching time for about 55 minutes or so. And then we'll split up into our discussion groups. This year we're going to be ending at 9.15, so I'm excited about that. We'll get a little more time in our discussion groups and we'll end at the same time Bill does. Um, so hopefully that'll be helpful. And um, as I mentioned, we have coffee and water available for people. Um, if you need to have food, you're welcome to bring something. We're going to plan, hopefully plan, on two meetings this year where we're going to have food together. The last meeting of this year in December and then the last meeting of the year in May. So, or April, sorry. So hopefully that'll happen. We'll see how that goes. Um, but we'll let you know about that later. And then the last thing before Smedley comes, I wanted to just talk to you about communication. Um, there was a email that went out from the CCB Church Communication site. If you guys didn't get that, it went out last week to all of you. So if you didn't get that, maybe check your spam and make sure if it went into your spam folder. Or when you get in your discussion group, um, check with your leader. She'll have the list of contact information, make sure yours is correct on there so that we're sending it to the right place. Because we, we want you guys to all get that communication. Um, it's just a reminder and encouragement for the Wellspring coming up. So let us know if you're not getting that. Um, and with that, I'm going to just have Smedley come up. If you don't know, Smedley's married to Janet, and she helps lead the Wednesday Wellspring. And they have five kids that are just growing like leaps and bounds. And so, and Smedley is the elder over women's ministries, so it's fun that he's able to come and teach us for the first Wellspring. Um, also, I wanted you to know that Wellspring has a big history. Um, there's lots of, this is our 13th year, so there's lots of women involved in making Wellspring what it is today. And also all the elders are behind everything that we do in Wellspring. They have a big um, say in what happens. And I just want you to know, even if they're not teaching up here, they're involved in what we do and what we say and what we're te what's being taught. So um, we're just so thankful that it, God's laid it on their heart to be um, a big influence on what we do here. So come on up to You know, what time is this portion of our time together over? Um, I, I get till 8.30? That can't be right. <laughs> I just made my day. <laughs> Careful. 8.10, okay. I can, li I can live with that. <laughs> Thank you. That was so generous. Yeah, you know, we're going to move back Sunday morning services to end at 1 p.m. now. It's just <laughs> wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I'm so thankful for what you just said, Dina, in terms of the relationship between the women's ministry of this church and the elders. 
Um, that is a rare thing in churches. Oftentimes ministries in a church just become their independent little kingdoms and everybody vying for their own little territory. Uh, but the topic we're looking at today, the vision and purpose of the church and how it relates to Wellspring, is the fruit of the heart of the ladies at this church who started Wellspring 13 seasons ago, who said, we want women's ministry not to be something independent of the rest of the church, um, but exactly what the church um, is doing and seeking to equip saints for the work of ministry. So um, this truly is unique, and I'm so thankful for the ladies who serve and lead and and, and Dina mentioned uh, some of those who behind the scenes labored on your benefit uh, to get the notebooks into your hands, to set up the schedule and arrange everything. I'm so thankful for those ladies. I get a little window into seeing how hard they work. Um, but I'm also so thankful for all of you uh, for being here. Uh, your presence is an encouragement to each other, and uh, it's an encouragement to the pastors of this church. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit this morning, but the power of a godly woman is transgenerational. And so your pursuit of things at the heart level before the Lord that leaks out into the lives of others in this church and then extends into homes and extends into neighborhoods and communities and extends to the ends of the earth, frankly, is powerful stuff. So I am so thankful that you're here. I'm going to pray and we'll get started with our time this morning. Lord, thank you for these ladies. Thank you for the power of your word. Uh, we thank you for the organism of your church that you have arranged, designed, equipped, gifted, uh, placed people into as a body, uh, like members of one another, organically dependent upon one another, and all under the head, which is Christ. Lord, we thank you for the way you've planned these things out for your glory. Uh, we pray that all that we would do uh, from the heart uh, would be a matter of bringing you glory. We ask that even now as we sit under your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I think you have some notes there. It uh, should be titled, How Wellspring Fits into the Vision and Purpose of Grace Bible Church. And we're going to do two things this morning. I want to explain to you the vision and purpose of the church, and then I want to explain how Wellspring fits into that. Uh, organizations have vision statements or purpose statements. They, they act as sort of guideposts. Uh, they give direction uh, they tell us what we should be looking at, what we should be aiming at. You've heard the old adage, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. What should we aim at as a church? And there are a number of ways to frame up a biblical purpose for a local church. And we've articulated it this way. The glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ uh, under the life transformation by the Spirit. You hear a Trinitarian purpose there, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Uh, each of the members of the Trinitarian Godhead involved in what we are to be doing as a church, all for the glory of God. And that vision, looking toward God and his glory, Jesus and his cross, and the Holy Spirit and the life-transforming power that he has, leads us to a purpose. And that purpose is to draw in, build up, and send out. And so that's what we're going to unfold for a few moments uh, as we look at the vision and purpose of the church. Let's start with that biblical vision of God. Uh, it just means what we are focused on. What are we intentionally keeping in front of us regularly? And we want to keep in front of us a right view of God, a biblical view of God. Steve Lawson has said that God made man in his own image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. Uh, we like to try to make God up the way we want him to be, and we dare not. Right? We must think of God as he is. A.W. Tozer said, 
that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. That is the truth. We, we must think about God the way he actually is. And, and all of this is predicated on the reality of what the Bible is. Right? This is Grace Bible Church. Bible is our middle name. We mean it. <laughs> we, everything we do comes from God's word. What is this book that we have? This is God's own self-disclosure. That is, he is revealing himself graciously to people who don't deserve to get to know him. And he tells us who he is, what he is like, what he does, what he expects of us. And what a gracious gift this self-disclosure is. But it means what we think about God must come from his own self-disclosure. What we think about ourselves must come from God's assessment of us in this infallible word. What we think about sin, what we think about salvation, what we think about the world around us. All of what we think about, our worldview, if you want to call it that, must come from God's word. This is the only anchor, the only foundation, the only thing that is true absolutely without error that you can get your hands on. And it also gives us a guide about how to do the church and how to do women's ministry and everything else in between. So when we talk about thinking about God rightly, we mean our source material for thinking about God is only God's word. And we talk about God and, and we speak of his glory. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about glory, but there are sort of three layers to thinking about the glory of God in Scripture. The first is his intrinsic glory. That means God is glorious all by himself. He, he needs no fans. He needs no environment to be glorious. He just is intrinsically glorious. Um. I want to look at a couple of passages. I think you have these in your notes. First uh, Timothy 6, verse 15 is the first place we'll look. And we're going to see these uh, layers of glory in these passages we'll look at. But when we think about glory in God's own nature, what do we mean? Um, maybe something like what Jonathan Edwards described as the sum total of his attributes. Everything that God is like, all of his characteristics... All wrapped up into one thing, radiating out in brilliant glory and in heaviness of weight. So the Old Testament word for glory was kavod, and it just means heaviness or significance. We talk about somebody throwing their weight around. Uh, that's, that's the idea. Um, when, when you talk about something as being heavy, maybe a surfer talking about a, a large break at the ocean. It's heavy, dude. Um, we talk about the heaviness of God. That's the Old Testament concept of glory. In the New Testament, the concept of glory is the Greek word doxa, where we get our word doxology, right? We sing the doxology. An ology is the study of something. Biology is the study of life. Doxology is a word about glory or the study of glory. And the word doxa comes out of a, the idea of brilliant, outshining, radiating light. This unapproachable brilliance. That's the New Testament idea of glory. And sometimes we see these two ideas combined. God is simultaneously described as weighty and significant and brilliant. That's the idea of God's intrinsic glory. It just comes out from who he is. There's a second layer of glory, and it is ascribed glory. That is, creatures recognize God's intrinsic glory. This is where the fans come in. Uh, this, this is where fame uh, idea of glory comes in. We applaud God. 
We, we, we love that he is intrinsically glorious. We recognize it and we praise him for it. That's the doxology. We just burst out in song. We acknowledge that he is glory. We ascribe him glory. Uh, the glorious angels ascribe glory to the glorious Trinitarian God. It is right for us creatures to recognize his intrinsic glory. The third layer is dispensed glory. That is, the God who says, I will not share my glory with anyone, says we will share in the inheritance of his glory. What does that mean? Um, we do not become intrinsically glorious, but we bask in the radiating glory of God's intrinsic glory. We ascribe glory to him as we applaud him for his intrinsic glory. And he brings us into a shining, radiating, glorious state. As far as it's possible for finite creatures to reflect the glory of God, we will. That's what it means for Christians to be glorified. And what an exciting thing that is. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And you see they're both intrinsic glory and ascribed glory. God dwells in this unapproachable light. To him be the glory forever. Right? That's intrinsic and ascribed. Uh, think about Romans 11.36. This is the statement at the end of Paul's explanation of the gospel. You know, if you break down the book of Romans into two basic parts... Chapters 1 to 11 are, I want to explain the gospel to you in its rich fullness. And then chapter 12 to 16 is, therefore, this is how you live in light of the gospel. But right at that turn, at the end of the gospel explanation, you get this outburst of praise from Paul in Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things, intrinsic glory, to him be the glory forever, amen, ascribed glory. All right, let's look at one more. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Here we get to dispensed glory. And, and here is the progressive sanctification process of a Christian being conformed ever evermore bit by bit into the image of the glory of Christ. Notice how Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and the Lord there is the Lord Jesus. So we, we are looking towards the glorious Christ, beholding him, and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory or from one stage of glory to another stage of glory. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The second use of the word Lord here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is the supernatural agent personally involved in the life of a Christian, bringing the Christian from one stage of glorious reflection of Christ to another stage of glorious reflection of Christ. We look at him, and like a mirror, we begin to reflect his glory in greater and greater measure as the Holy Spirit inside us shaves off those awful things 
and is replacing them with glorious things that look more and more like Jesus. That's the process of sanctification. And the termination of that process of sanctification is what? Glorification. When there will be no more sin, not even the possibility of sin, not, not no ability to sin, and all glory. Again, as far as it's possible for a finite human being to resemble the infinite glory of the second person of the Trinity, you will look like Jesus. And what a thrilling reality. So the glorious God, who will not share his intrinsic glory, will dispense glory for those who believe. All right, let's look at the cross of Christ. So we think about the, the glorious God, God the Father in all of his glory, particularly. And then we're also focused on the cross of Christ. And, and we think about the cross of Christ. Without Jesus' death at Calvary, there would be no hope. The, the glory of God in all of its beautiful, brilliant excellence would incinerate sinners. You and I could not stand. This is why Jude 24 and 25 is so critical. Uh, God is the one who is able to make us stand in his presence, blameless with great joy. If there were no cross of Christ, how would that verse read? God will make us stand before his radiating glory and it will not go well for you. But because of the cross of Christ, we have hope. I don't mean wishful thinking. I mean the confident reality that God has purchased for us a redemption that will bring us into his glory and will not be eternally destructive for us, but be a source of infinite and increasing joy. Now, the cross of Christ is our message. We have nothing to say apart from the cross of Christ. Uh, the, the church doesn't exist to, to uh, do lesser things as its message, but to proclaim Christ. The reason you're still on this earth after having believed and prior to being glorified is so that you can be an ambassador of the cross of Christ. And we have no hope apart from the cross of Christ. We have no message apart from the cross of Christ. And I want you to see how the cross of Christ relates to the glory of God. Turn to Philippians chapter two for a moment. And if you think for a second about what it meant that the glorious second person of the Trinity took on the form of human flesh, became a slave, and went to a cross. I know we wear crosses as jewelry. Uh, they're ornaments on buildings. They seem pretty. They're decorative items. Cross was a horrific emblem of the worst kind of death for the lowest sorts of humanity. It was an awful physical torture. It, it, it really, there's no way to describe this, but, but if we walked around in civilized company with a Auschwitz gas chamber emblem hanging from our neck, or an electric chair, or, or some other instrument of execution, but, but one that was done in the most awful, painful, excruciating way that was designed to eradicate every last vestige of humanity from a soul. Way up in public view, up in the air, hanging before everybody. What would it be like to dangle that emblem from our necks? To post that on our buildings? The cross is an object of shame, 
and humiliation and scorn. This is why there's a there's an embarrassment to the cross for those who don't believe it. It is foolishness and scandalous. And, and I want you to see how the, the cross of Christ, which is the most unglorious thing ever, actually is the most glorious thing ever. This is Philippians 2. Don't miss the point of this section of Philippians 2. Paul is telling Christians, be humble, because look what Jesus did. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, because he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord. He's in charge of everything to the glory of the Father. And, and did you notice the turn in verse 9? For this reason, God highly exalted. The glory of Christ emanating to the glory of the Father happens precisely because God purposed in Christ to bring about ultimate humiliation in the second person of the Trinity. So that he could rescue us who have no business with glory, who have no business being glorified, who have no business having access to the glorious God. These things are too good to be true. And if we think for a moment that the glory of God is somehow narcissistic, have you ever thought about that? Wait, if God only thinks about God as the most and the highest and the best all the time, isn't that selfish? I mean, if anybody else did that, wouldn't that be just utterly shameful? Well, yes. Because if anybody else did that, they wouldn't be God. If God didn't set his highest affections on his own intrinsically glorious perfection, if God didn't love God most, God himself would be an idolater. Think about the cosmic criminality it would be if God set his highest love on something other than God the universe would fall apart. God would be an idolater. And again, we would have no hope. We'd still be in our sins. For God to love God supremely is not at odds with God dispensing glory for and loving sinners totally. Because God glorifies his own glorious perfections in the saving of unworthy sinners. Do you understand one of the things that's intrinsic to the glory of God are characteristics like his love, patience, grace, mercy, long suffering. All of those attributes that are a tremendous benefit to sinners, without which we would be hopeless, helpless and dead forever. God gets glory because he is intrinsically beautiful in all of those attributes we get the benefit. It's not at odds for God to be supremely committed to his own glory and for us to be loved by him. In fact, we couldn't be loved by him any other way. 
So the glory of God and the cross of Christ go hand in hand. In fact, when we think about the cross of Christ, truly the, the word cross here is shorthand for the person and work of the second person of the Trinity in total. Right? We, we, we mean by the cross of Christ, the humiliation, crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, mediation, and our anticipation of his return. Uh, we, we mean the whole work of Christ. Uh, we don't merely have Christ as a sin forgiver. We have Christ as our creator and sustainer and sin forgiver and conqueror of death and returning king and Lord of lords. He is all of these things. And in the present, he mediates on our behalf in the throne room of heaven. The one who bled for us at the cross and actually paid for our sins is the one who in the throne room of heaven, even when Satan, the accuser of the brethren, may stand there and say, Smedley did this and this and this. I saw it and Jesus says, I got that. We have our advocate, Jesus the righteous. So we boast in the cross of Christ. Truly, when you understand the cross, well, what else do we want to boast in? Let's think about life transformation by the Spirit. The God's, God is going to get glory. The glorious God will get glory by His work through His Son at the cross. And the God of glory will get glory on the basis of the Son's work at the cross through the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Without the active work of the Holy Spirit, you and I would still be spiritually dead. We've been talking about this in Equipping Hour. Um, what, what is the effectual calling of the Spirit? This is regeneration or new birth. In John 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That means any human that comes into this world does not have what it takes to be pleasing to God. You need a total fresh start, a start that you can't make. I know people in our world talk about, I feel like I was born again when I started this new exercise program. No, no you weren't. You're still the same you. To be born again is a recognition that you must be born from above. That is a supernatural transforming power must happen to you and in you for a complete restart. Right? This is why I love to say to people on their birthday, thank you for being born. Oh, I didn't have much to do with that. Right. Thank you for being born again, too. I see your point. I think that's why Jesus uses the illustration. You must be born again. You must have something happen to you of which you are not capable. So what happens in belief? What happens at faith? Uh, you come to Jesus Christ. You recognize that you're a sinner. Your eyes are opened to the depths of your depravity for the first time. You know you're hopeless and you say, wait, Jesus can save me? Ah, help. What's happening in that moment when you cry out, oh, Lord, help, save me. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Uh, the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself through faith and repentance that are a gift from him. And you exercise your will. You exercise your desires. I want Jesus. I don't want my sin anymore. But that is because God is actively transforming you. You are being rebirthed in that moment. And the old thing goes away and a new life begins in an instant. You may not be able to pinpoint the instant. Uh, but there is a moment where the Holy Spirit transforms and new life begins. Without that, we would still be dead. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Washes, seals, 
permanently indwells. He leads believers to put to death the deeds of the body. He, according to Romans 8, is the internal witness of our relationship to God as Father. It is the Spirit in our spirits who causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, that tender, affectionate word for God. We might translate Daddy. You know you have a a daughter-father relationship to the King of the universe because the Holy Spirit indwells and puts that affectionate love and knowledge in your heart. Right? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, personal relationship to the king of the universe, what's that about? <laughs> that is the reality for every believer. You know that you belong to the king and you're his daughter or you're a son. The Holy Spirit does that work. And then we read from 2 Corinthians 3.18, that work of progressive sanctification. The Lord, the Spirit, is transforming the believer step by step into greater conformity with the image of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when you think about the the members of the Trinity, if there's a a member of the triune Godhead that is most easily forgotten, it is the Holy Spirit. Not a power, not a force, not an idea, not an impression. The Holy Spirit is a person with all the fullness of the attributes of God. And the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. (laughs) And he works with the other members of the Trinity to accomplish not only creation, but the sustaining of the world, the restraining of sin. Uh, We've already talked about new birth and the progress of sanctification. The Holy Spirit, if he did not exist, if he were not working, we wouldn't be Christians. We couldn't grow as Christians. We wouldn't be sealed as Christians. Our critical moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit... It means that we are probably more relationally interacting with the third member of the Trinity um, than we realize. And he is most easily forgotten. What is the relationship between the glory of God, the cross work of Christ, and this life transformation by the Spirit? I'm going to steal some words this morning from Octavius Winslow. Um, Octavius Winslow is an old dead guy writer, one of these Puritan types. But he describes the relationship of sanctification to dependence on Christ and the worship of God. I want to share this with you this morning. This has been a comfort to me. Uh, If you've ever been weary in your fight with sin, I think this is a help. We need to remember the, the, um, the good side of being here and having the residual remains of depravity. There's a war inside but that war tells us something it is an assurance that the holy spirit dwells in us because he's fighting with the things that are leftovers from our old life but it is also christian a matter of worship before the lord where you bring glory to god by active participation with the holy spirit in your life to put to death the deeds of the body so i want you to hear winslow's words on this This is the internal righteousness, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, which consists in the subjugation of the mind, the will, the affections, the desires, yes, the whole soul, to the government and supremacy of Jesus, bringing into captivity, says the apostle, every thought to the obedience of Christ. O you who are striving against sin, longing to be conformed to the image of God's Son, panting to be more pure in heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Think that in every step which you take in the path of holiness, 
every corruption subdued, in every besetting sin laid aside, in every holy desire begotten, Christ glorified in you. You perhaps reply, but the more I strive for mastery, the more I seem to be conquered. The stronger I oppose my sins, the stronger my sins seem to be. Does it seem like Octavius Winslow is reading your mail? But what does this prove? He goes on. It proves that God is working in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of Satan. That the spirit dwelling in the heart is warring with the flesh. It is truly remarked by John Owen that if a believer lets his sins alone, his sins will let him alone. But let the believer search them as with candles. Let him bring them to the light, oppose, mortify, and crucify them. And they will to the last struggle for the... Uh, They will be to the last struggle for the victory. And this inward warfare undeniably marks the inhabitation of God, the Holy Spirit, in the soul. To see one advancing in holiness, thirsting for God, the heart fixed in its solemn purpose of entire surrender, cultivating higher views, aiming for a loftier standard. To behold the Christian, perhaps, carving his way to his throne through mighty opposition, fighting without fears within, striving for the mastery of some besetting sin, sometimes foiling and sometimes foiled, sometimes with a shout of victory on the lips, sometimes with a painful consciousness of defeat bowing down the heart, yet still onward. The needle of the soul, he's talking about like the needle of a compass, the needle of a soul with slow and tremulous but certain and true movement still pointing to its glorious attraction, God faith that can never fail, hope that can never die, love that can never be quenched, hanging amid their warfare and in all their weakness upon that nail fastened in a sure place. How is Christ, our sanctification, glorified in such labors? This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You have thought it may be of the glory that Christ receives from brilliant genius and profound talent, from splendid gifts and glowing zeal, from costly sacrifices and even extensive usefulness. But have you ever thought of the glory, the far greater, richer glory that flows to him from a contrite heart, a broken heart, a lowly mind, a humble walk from the tear of godly repentance that falls when seen by no human eye and the sigh of godly sorrow that is breathed when heard by no human ear from the sin abhorrence and self-loathing, the deep sense of vileness, poverty and infirmity that takes you to Jesus with the prayer, Lord, here I am. I have brought you to my rebellious will, my wandering heart, my worldly affections, my peculiar infirmity, my besetting and constantly overpowering sin. Receive me graciously. Put forth the mighty power of your grace in my soul. Subdue all, rule all, subjugate all to yourself. Will it not be for your glory, the glory of your great name, if this strong corruption were subdued by your grace? If this powerful sin were nailed to your cross, if this temper so sensitive, this heart so impure, these affections so truant, this mind so dark, these desires so earthly, these pursuits so carnal, these aims so selfish, if they were all entirely renewed by your spirit, sanctified by your grace, and made each to reflect your image, yes, Lord, it would be for your glory through time and eternity. I know that was a mouthful. I hope a heartful and I hope encouraging to help you recognize where worship is. Sometimes we limit worship to the singing when we're all together. Hey, the music starts. Worship starts. No. Romans 12, 1. 
your life lived for the glory of God in Christ in dependence on the Holy Spirit is worship moment by moment. When we get together and sing with our voices, that's great. That's a, that's a choir reflecting for the audience who is God that which ought to be true of our lives all the time. Do not neglect the reality that the great things done for God are not necessarily move my family to Papua New Guinea and plant 18 churches. Those are great things. But great things are done for God at the heart level, inside, bringing those wayward thoughts under the rule of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Don't undercut that. Don't short that. That is supernatural power. That is worship. All right, this glory of God and the cross of Christ, life transformation by the Spirit, leads us to do something. It doesn't just leave us stagnant, um, basking in Trinitarian glory. Uh, It actually leads us to an active life. What does that life look like for our church? Draw in, build up, send out. Draw in, build up, send out. Uh, That means um, we want to see people come to know Christ. And when they come to know Christ, we want to see them built up and complete in Christ. And we want to see them equipped and sent out to Papua New Guinea, to Italy, um, to New Orleans, to Gilbert, and to your own homes and your neighborhoods. Uh, There's a sense in which we equip and train and send out missionaries. We want to equip and train and send out pastors. We also want to equip and send out every believer in this church for the Great Commission to our neighborhoods, to our homes. And so that's what this idea of draw and build up, send out is all about. When we think about drawing in, um, we just mean that the world around us needs Christ. It also means that we don't make assumptions about those who might show up at a building. Right? The church is composed of the regenerate. Technically, biblically, the, the church's membership is the membership of the redeemed. This is why we have a membership class and elders will sit with people who want to be members at Grace Bible Church and we get to hear your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, We want to recognize organizationally what heaven knows already. The true members of the church are those who are born again. There are audiences that are amongst us on a Sunday morning. I already mentioned one. When we sing, by the way, who's the worship team on a Sunday morning? All y'all, all of us, right? Um, that was Texan, I think. Okay. Um, and and the, the, the musicians, they're not the worship team. They don't see themselves that way. Um, they are servants working really hard to be invisible. Um, and those of you who participate in the worship team, you know this. You get the recordings <laughs> the week after. Diana, do you experience this pain? Um, Diane. Oh, my word. I don't listen to the recordings. Do you listen to those recordings? Yeah, it's painful. Oh, man. Sour notes and pitchy vocals. And, oh. But the whole goal of the musicians is to be invisible so that the gathered saints can hear each other and join voices together and sing to God. God is the primary audience at church on Sunday mornings. But there's another audience. It is those who attach themselves to us on a Sunday who don't yet know Christ. 
and you've dragged a bunch of those rugrats right in the front door. <laughs> those little bundles of depravity you brought into the world. <laughs> they're, they're not born, born again. They must hear the gospel. They must repent and be saved. They must experience a supernatural, transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then there are our neighbors and our friends and people who just see the sign and they walk in. Grace, that sounds good. I think I need some of that. We get people like that every week. They see the sign. They say, ah, I should go to church. Grace sounds like a good idea. And so we get these audiences of people who come in and, and they're watching the church. They're not the church. The, the, the little ones we bring in and the visitors that come and, and your friends that you invite and family members from out of town. Um, they are an audience to things that God is doing of a supernatural nature. And they're not participating yet, but we want them to. So what is drawing in me? That means next generation ministries, student ministries, 414 ministries, ASU, uh, Grace on Campus outreach ministries, uh, hopefully coming this fall, Spanish ministries to the neighborhoods around us. Um, the, the neighborhood evangelism that happens on Fridays with a team of people that goes to the apartment complexes across the street. Uh, it means the church planting efforts in Gilbert and New Orleans and Papua New Guinea. Um, it means all of the, the conversations you strike up in the grocery store or in your home or in the workplace or on sports teams. That drawing in is the heartbeat of, I have infinite treasures in Christ. And look at this massive humanity racing towards destruction around me. If you love Christ, he came to the earth to seek and to save that which is lost. We ought to have Christ's heart to seek and to save that which is lost. It means we don't make assumptions about those around us. It means we ask each other, hey, tell me about your life in Christ. When did you come to know him? Isn't that kind of intrusive? Isn't Christianity a private thing between you and the Lord? Uh, no, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. If you don't confess me before men, I'll deny you before my father and his holy angels. Christianity is not a private thing. Your love for Christ has to leak out. So we can ask each other. How are you tracking with the Lord? When did you become a believer? We don't want to make assumptions just because somebody's here that they know Christ. That drawing in happens, inviting somebody to a small group, engaging in a spiritual conversation. The drawing in happens by bringing friends to church. The, the drawing in happens by you being equipped as evangelists to scatter from Sundays and uh, share the gospel where you're at. That leads us to building up. What do we do with believers when they get here? Um, turn to Ephesians 4. We would see ourselves as an equipping model of church based on Ephesians 4.12. Pastors and teachers exist for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Um, it is not Omri's job to do the ministry of the church. Right? It is not Eric Martin's job to do the ministry of the church. It is not Jake Handler's job to do the ministry of the church. It is not Kyle Frazee's job to do the ministry of students. No, pastors, teachers are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4.12. That means ministry is your job. Uh, sometimes in, in um, sort of English nomenclature, we, we talk about the minister. Um, well, the word in the New Testament means you. Every believer, ministers. 
doing the ministry. Um, so if, if that's the New Testament model of the Christian life, every Christian doing the ministry, pastors and teachers being given by Jesus, Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints to do the ministry, then it means the way we do church isn't going to be the big tent revival model. Um, I, I grew up sort of in that model of church. The idea that um, the, the really gifted guy up front, his job is to tell everybody about Jesus. Your job is to go recruit the audience. And, and we'll entertain them. We'll make it comfortable for them. We'll do whatever it is, we can to get them in the door. You know, they say, hey, we'd like this kind of music. We'd like this kind of entertainment. Short messages make me feel good. You know, all that kind of stuff. And we'll fill the place. And then the really gifted guy gives the just tearjerker, comedic speech that's going to get people in and make a decision for Jesus. Right? That's the old tent revival model of church. Um, but, but we're going to follow the blueprint of Ephesians 4, equipping saints for the work of ministry. So we draw people in. We want to build them up. Colossians 1.28, seeing that every man is complete in Christ. Um, that's a long, slow process. <laughs> is anybody in here done? Complete in Christ. Any hands? No. Um, no, we're, we're all working in that together. That's one of the, the big parts of, of the one another ministries in the body of Christ. Um, if you've looked at the 24 plus one another commands of the New Testament, you know that those are the responsibilities, again, of ministry with each other as believers. Pastors and teachers equip Christians to be evangelists. Pastors and teachers equip Christians to minister to one another. And, and at the end of the book of Romans, Paul said to the believers there whom he'd never met, I'm confident you are able to counsel one another. That is, bring God's word to bear into the lives of, of brokenness and real trouble in each other's lives. That's believer's ministry. So um, pastors must be about building up the body, equipping the body, and the body itself must see its role in each other's lives that way. Um, this is one of the reasons Wellspring is so critical. This is one of the vehicles uh, that the, the ladies labor for and the elders have have gotten behind to equip you for effective ministry in the church. And I want you to see this in Ephesians 4. What does it look like to be built up, to be equipped for service? Verse 12. Um, well, here's the goal, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is, um, we've got to grow up. We've got to grow up to be more like Jesus together. And the standard is Jesus. That's, that's where we're aiming. As a result, verse 14, we're not going to be children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, every fad and trend and idea that blows through town every other minute. Um, no, we're just going to be rock solid on Christ. Um, that, that's the goal. That's discernment. And then verse 15, notice this, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. Truth and love aren't enemies. You're a truth church. I want to be in a love church. No, you can't have love if it's, it's not loving if it's not the truth. And it's not the truth if it's not done in the sweet, warm nest of real, thorough, biblical Christian love. So those two things go together. That's what we're aiming at. And then notice verse 16. From whom, and the whom is Christ from verse 15, from Christ... The whole body being fitted and held together by every joint of supply, 
according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I'm going to take a huge mouthful of words there and summarize it for you. The body causes the growth of the body. If you were to diagram the sentence, that's the main idea. What causes church growth? And, and the kind of growth that was detailed here, not larger parking lots, uh, bigger empire, uh, you know, uh, more programs. No, but the spiritual growth detailed in Ephesians 4, what causes it? The church does. The church causes the growth of the church. The body causes the growth of the church. And the church there is depicted like a, an organism, like an organic, interconnected, interdependent uh, unit of different parts that function with each other, that need each other. Right? My thumb can't say, I don't need the hand. I'm going to go be a thumb on my own. It's not going to survive very long. And the hand suffers when it tries. Right? Don't, don't remove your thumb and think that your thumb's going to be better or the body's going to be better. It won't. The reality is for the church to grow the church, for the church to cause the growth of the church, for the body to cause the spiritual health and growth of the body, two things have to happen. And they're in the middle of verse 16. The proper working of each individual part and the fitting of those parts together where there is joint of supply for growth. Those two parts are critical. Uh, let's take the first one. The proper working of each individual part. That means you, as a Christian woman, before the Lord, worship. Be transformed by the Spirit in the conformity with Christ. It means read your Bible. We're going to talk about discipline one of Wellspring. It means you bringing your sorry heart before the Lord on a daily basis, putting your mind and your heart and your thoughts and your affections and your will and your emotions under his word, having them subjected to his word, his ways, you begin to think God's thoughts after him because you've come to meet with the God of the word. And, and like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, you, you come before the Lord in his word and you fall down. Woe is me. I'm dead. I'm a sinful person. I live among sinful people and I've seen the Lord high and lifted up. Right. We we don't come to the Bible to get answers all by themselves, some independent academic exercise. We don't come to the Bible to win arguments. We don't come to the Bible to fill our heads up with knowledge and be puffed up. We come to the word of God to meet with God. He's speaking. Do you do that when you read your Bible? The God of the universe wants to say something to me. What, what, what's he going to say? And you put your eyes down on the page. He's not speaking somewhere else. He's not going to speak through intuition and impressions in your mind. He's not going to speak through signs, you know, a deer walking across the field and it means something. No, he has spoken. The God of the universe has graciously communicated. What's he going to say to me? Be with him. That's the proper working of the individual part. Listen, your Bible reading, your pursuit of the Lord, your time in prayer, your turning from sin, all the internal spiritual disciplines that you must do as a Christian, the things heaven sees. That's the proper working of the individual part. When those individual parts properly working join with other individual parts properly working, what happens? Multiplied encouragement, massive growth. That's the joint of supply. You stunt the growth of the church when you neglect private worship. You do. That responsibility is on your shoulders, according to Ephesians 4.16. You also stunt the growth of the body when you're not putting your life into and with the lives of others in the local church. The joining together of every part is the joining 
uh, what, what Paul calls here the joint of supply, kind of awkward grammar, and it sort of breaks down the physiology if you're a, a, a biology major and you're going, wait, that's not how a body works. Um, joints here are not like knees and elbows. Um, in, in, the, in the Greek physiological terminology here, uh, the idea was where everything joins to one another, Li- uh, ligaments and sinews and, and, and blood vessels and all that stuff. Wherever those things join together, they, they need each other, they depend on one another. That becomes the conduit for supply of spiritual vitality and growth of the church. How does the whole church, in unity, with discernment, truth and love, start to look more and more and more like Christ together? Individual parts working properly and joining their lives to one another. We need it. That's God's plan. That's God's plan for building up. And then sending out, just think about Matthew 28. You know this text. This is the Great Commission. Jesus with the 11. Uh, Judas had defected, so you've got 11 uh, disciples left who will be the apostles. They'll get another guy and then another guy. So you end up with 12 or 13 or maybe 14. Um, and... And their task is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises, I will be with you. And what does he say to them? Make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. How would those 11 make disciples of all the nations? By being disciple-making, disciple-making, disciple-making disciples. In which chain we are. We're still in that stream. Uh, the Lord is still with us. It's not yet the end of the age. And the ends of the earth have not yet heard of Christ. So we're part of that stream. What does it mean to draw in and build up so that we could be a really great church, just tight, unified in Christ, and us for no more? Nobody else get in because it's perfect right now. Well, it isn't perfect right now. Um, and the task is not done. Um, if you've been part of a small group at Grace Bible Church that has um, split. Split's just a bad word. What, uh, Carol, help me out. Um, is it cellular mitosis or meiosis? Mitosis. Mitosis. Uh, Whatever. Okay, ask Carol about it later. Um, we, we had one. Now we have two complete, independent, fully operating systems. Right? If you've been part of a, of, a, of a small group multiplication, or as we have just been part of a church plant where we sent 120 of our favorite people across town, oh, there, there's pain in that. It's like, I didn't want things to change. Um, eternity's coming where we won't feel that, I don't want things to change. I, I just want them to be perfect. That, that's coming. But that's not our task here and now. Draw in, build up, send out means we're going to send the Twombly's to Papua New Guinea, even though you're just getting to know them. We're going to send Omri and Emily and their beautiful kids and some other people to New Orleans, even though oh, they're they're like stitched into the fabric of this church and it's just going to rip our hearts out. And that's God's plan. And that's good. And maybe a decade from now, we'll plant another church in this valley and some of you will go. It'll be hard good Um, the task isn't done and aside from the the kind of semi-permanent sending out of missions and church planting and maybe multiplying your small group there there is the every week sending out 
That is, the, we, we come here, we get equipped, we hear God's word, we build one another up, and then Sunday's over, and it's Monday morning. And you're wherever you are finding yourself Monday morning, and you enter that world. You take the gospel into that world. You take all that equipping into that world. You take a, a heart full of Christ and, and love for the body of Christ, and, and you don't walk out of the world and, and hunker down. I can't wait till Sunday. Um, no, you're, you're being equipped to be sent out and commissioned. That's what the church is about. Draw and build up, send out. So what are we doing here? What, how does Wellspring relate to all of that? You have to understand, Wellspring is not a Bible study. Oh, we will study the Bible. But if you've been in other ministries, if, you, if you've uh, been in uh, Bible studies here at Grace Bible Church, or you've been in the, the kind of uh, women's Bible studies that um, have a bunch of different people from different churches uh, get together and, and people grow in those things. Anybody, uh, by the way, involved in BSF now? Or um, what's the other one um, with the pens and the colored markers? And precept. Precept, okay. Anybody done Precept or BSF before? Okay, tons of benefit from those things. Um, this isn't those Right? There, there are churches that have a, a women's Bible studies. You kind of drop in, drop out, come when you can and benefit and grow from the word. Um, this isn't that. Those are good. But Wellspring has a different design. Uh, you have a notebook with your name on it. There's assignments and discussions. There's discussion groups. There's, there's homework you have to do. I don't know when the last time you did homework is. What is this? Um, this is an intentional design, cumulative approach to helping you be a woman in the local church the way God designs. And I want to turn your attention to Titus chapter 2 for a moment. Titus chapter 2 is the only passage in your Bible that tells women's ministries what they must be. There's a lot of things women's ministries can be. There's a lot of good things out there. But if churches neglect what's listed out here in Titus 2 then churches fail at women's ministry, no matter how many wonderful things they do. Um, it, it's like having all of the extras without the main dish. Right? Titus 2 is sort of the main dish of women's ministries according to the New Testament. Uh, listen to this. Uh, Titus 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Okay, so there's a... I, I'm not going to name any names... But some of you ladies are ahead of others in your walk with Christ, either by age or by spiritual maturity. Not naming any names, but I'm looking at you. What is your task? To be the right kind of woman and then disciple others in the church along these lines. Listen, um, teaching the younger women, encouraging them to love their husbands love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Uh, by the way, is there a Titus 2 lesson in the scope this year? Is that going to get covered? Yep, there is. Okay, good. So all of that will be filled out and explained for you in more detail than I'll do this morning. But if a church isn't doing that, the church fails at discipling women. Does that make sense? There are lots of other things you can be involved in with women at the church. Was I supposed to explain the chart? Did you, do you guys go over the chart? You will. 
Okay, so there's lots of other things. I, that just occurred to me just now. Okay, I probably was. I'm glad you will. Um, there are times and places to, to, as women to get together and discuss uh, Ezekiel's detailed descriptions of the millennial temple in, in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Uh, that'll be great. There's a place for that. Okay, when is that study? I want to sign up. Um, th- there is a place... Um, to get really practical instruction about some things. How do I survive being a mom to little ones? How do I improve my marriage? Um, How do I decide whom to marry? How do I answer all the practical life questions? There is a place for that. And that happens organically and programmatically in various aspects of ministry in this church. But this is designed to help with the building blocks of the Christian life that we always use, the things you do every day in order to be the kind of woman who is followable, who will be able to teach other women how to do what they should do in the body of Christ. So there's number, any number of ways you could lay this out, but we've uh, organized this into several disciplines. Discipline one is the being a shepherd over your own heart. Think about a shepherd with sheep. Uh, a shepherd is leading, guiding, feeding, protecting sheep. Think about what it means to be a shepherd over your own soul, your own inner man, your spirit, your heart. Your heart is the command and control center of who you are. It's your thinking, right? Heart is not just the emotions, biblically. Heart is what drives you internally. It's the real you. It's the you that survives your physical mortality, the inner man. You must be a shepherd over that. You tell yourself what to think. You direct yourself how to feel. Um, You... Let God's word direct your will, right? That is the bringing yourself, as Octavius Winslow said, under subjection to Christ and his ways. Okay, that's the internal fight. That's discipline one. And discipline one finds itself in the re- uh, regular daily discipline of reading your Bible and praying and spending time with the Lord. Um, discipline number two is that practice that discipline that habit it, it is a it is a duty it must be a discipline because it takes work i don't always feel like reading my bible in the morning um, but it's also a delight taste and see that the lord is good grow your appetite um, that will spill out into those closest to you the relationships in your home a spouse siblings roommates parents children uh, in-laws whoever it is that is in your orbit, ought to feel the effects of your personal heart shepherding. Right? That's what it means to be a shepherd in your own home. Um, And then the third discipline is the outflow of the ministry in your home to those in the church. And and listen, wouldn't it be great um, if those in your home said something like this? You know... The way you care for your own heart with the word is so rich. And the way you care for the rest of us as the outflow of your care for your own heart is so thorough and so deep. I just feel kind of selfish having it all to myself. I think you should serve other people in the church. Wouldn't that be great? Never heard anybody say that. But we should. We should. And, and these things, by the way, um, are not linear. You're, a Christian is doing all of these things all the time. We'll talk at the end of the time this year about balancing those things and the ways they need to be balanced. But to be drawn in, build up, sent out means you be a woman who worships God from the heart. 
And again, don't underestimate the power of that. Never underestimate the value, the eternal value of the influence of a godly woman on a home, on a church, in a neighborhood, on successive generations of believers. A woman cultivating a Godward heart is a force, a means of supernatural power and eternal influence. Heaven sees it when the world might not. Eternity will reflect it when it goes unrecognized here. Great will be your reward in heaven. You cannot be for a generation to come what you are not now here in a local body of believers. If you're the type of person that dreams about doing great things for God, we talked about that. What is that great thing and where does it start? Right here in the heart. You cannot be in the church what you are not in your home. And you cannot influence your home in ways that you are not shepherding your own heart. These are the simple disciplines of the Christian life and we never grow out of our need for them. That's what this is about. This feeds a biblical vision of God, fuels a biblical vision of God, and then feeds your gospel purpose in the church and beyond. What are the expectations for Wellspring? Um, one expectation is that you read your Bible. Um, you're, you've been given some Bible reading plans in your notebook. You can pick from one of those. You might pick a, a plan that takes you a year to get through your whole Bible or two years to get through your whole Bible. If you've never set your eyes on every word of your Bible, and by the way, walking down the hall doesn't count. <laughs> you need to read your whole Bible. Um, number one, because God wrote it. And what a treasure. But... But also for this very practical uh, um, idea, if you don't read your whole Bible, if you don't see every word at some point, um, there will be that lurking suspicion that can't ferret out with discernment error. Somebody can say, hey, but doesn't the Bible say da 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 da? And you're like, I don't know, maybe that's in some crevice I haven't looked at yet. You know, but believe me, God helps those who help themselves isn't in there. I've read every word. It's not there. You know, a penny saved is a penny earned is not a proverb in the Bible. Okay, I know it. I've read them all. There's a confidence you need to have of having read every word of God's word. And, and then that, uh, you do that one time and it will become a lifetime habit because it's addictive in all the right ways. So one expectation is that you read your Bible. Um, another expectation is that you keep up with the homework and the homework is there. Um, not the busy work kind of homework that some of your elementary school teachers gave you when they had a headache or whatever. I don't know why they did that. I don't know why I picked on teachers. That wasn't in my notes. Um, sorry, Lori, you never did that. You never gave busy work. Um, the homework is there as a window into your heart for you. It, it helps to write things out. Some of you will write, I don't know what the word is, a lot. Um, some of you will chicken scratch a couple sentences. Like, um, the, the, the point there is that you've interacted with the material and you've put on paper and then that becomes a point of discussion for ladies around you to also have a window into your heart. And I'm just going to ask you, is that threatening? Maybe. Is that intrusive? Yeah, kind of. Um, 
Is it good? Oh, yes, you must. You must open up, be transparent. Um, We benefit from one another. Um, Just know that every single person in this room, dysfunctional, broken, in need of grace. Don't feel like, I just can't share what's really going on here. These people wouldn't understand. They don't know me. Nobody in here is like me. Yeah, yeah, we're all like you. So get the benefit from doing the homework and from sharing. I think that's all I'm going to say. We'll pray and uh, we'll move on. Lord, thanks so much for this morning. I thank you for these ladies, for their willingness to get up on a Saturday morning and to be here, to be under the faucet of your word, um, to benefit from each other. God, we pray that they would sharpen each other, comfort one another, encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds, spur one another on to Godward devotion in every area of life. We pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.